History Nerds United. Hello, nerds. Welcome to the History Nerds United podcast. I'm your head nerd, Brendan. Thanks so much for being here. Pulitzer Prize winner David Kurtzer comes on to talk about his book, The Pope at War. Really great discussion. Uh, if you're Catholic, you're going to read the book and not going to feel great about a few things, but it's not a hit job the way some reviews of the book will say. Um, I loved it. It's really good. It's really fair. It's great history, and it reads really well. So let's go talk to David about it. I'm going to shut up. Let's do it. All right, here we are with Dr. David Kurtzer, author of The Pope at War, The Secret History of Pius XII, Mussolini, and Hitler. Dr. Kurtzer, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. So, David, this is a fantastic book, but before we even get to that, do you ever get tired of hearing Pulitzer Prize winner David Kurtzer? Because I feel like you, you just would never get tired of that. Um, yes, well, you're right. In one sense, it's always nice. Uh, on the other hand, it, I think when I heard the news, one of my uh, early thoughts anyway, after the, the surprise and shock was, oh, my God, this, you know, be my obituary that <laughs> David Kurtzer, Pulitzer Prize winner. And uh, that's kind of a bittersweet sort of thought. Um, but also uh, more recently, so that was 2015 for a book called The Pope and Mussolini. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was on the jury, the Pulitzer Prize jury for that award, which is biography, autobiography, memoir. And, you know, you realize how um, much, you know, the chance of fortune of who the uh, people on the jury are and, and uh, what mood they're in, what their interests are. And there's so many good books out there to win a prize like that with that kind of uh, standing and gets that much attention. Uh, you really also, uh, hopefully you did a good job on the book, but also you have to feel lucky. I have heard about the process before. It's a little crazy because you don't know it's happening really until it seems like everything happens. It's not like the Oscars or something where there's this big buildup and everybody knows who's up for it. It's all of a sudden like, oh, hey, congratulations. Yeah. In fact, um, my only previous experience with anything at all like that was the National Book Award. I wrote a book called The Kidnapping of Edgar Mortara in 1997. It came out and then I was one of the five finalists for nonfiction there and they announce the five finalists and then they come and the five finalists in each category there are four categories um mine was nonfiction. they do various events together and then they have a, a ceremony like the oscars uh where people you know dress up in tuxes and go to this dinner and they you know open the envelope and announce so it's kind of hard to enjoy the dinner um so but by contrast the pulitzer i had absolutely no idea that the Pulitzer was being you know, announced when it was, although I subsequently found out that in publishing houses like mine, a random house, that people all had a kind of TV on or a monitor on and watching live the ceremony and the announcements with kind of bated breath. If you had asked me, I would have said, oh, gee, weren't they you know, already decided for the previous year, you know, months earlier? And again, one has no, um, I mean, presumably the publisher had to nominate you. But And there's one thing I think people need to be a little careful about. You read about a book having been nominated for, let's say, the Pulitzer Prize, well, having been on the jury, I mean, there were a bunch of self-published books that were nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. So it clearly, that doesn't mean anything. What If you're a finalist, in the case of the National Book Awards announced in advance, in the case of the Pulitzer Prize, it's when they announce the actual winner that they usually announce a couple of uh, runners-up. That does mean something. Now, I 
would call you an author, right? Because we're talking about the book, but I think that's missing a few things from your resume because I, the first word that comes up when someone looks you up is anthropologist. So for first things first, I want to ask this question. What do we mean when we say anthropology? I know people throw this word around and they'll say, yes, I know what it means. But if you ask them to define it, they can't. So when we say that you're an anthropologist, what are we really saying? Well, it turns out uh, we think of anthropology as having four fields. And um, one of them, for example, is archaeology. Uh, another is uh, biological anthropology, which is study of human evolution. Uh, another linguistic anthropology about language diversity. And then uh, what I am and what the kind of largest subfield is social anthropology or cultural anthropology. And what we study is uh, trying to understand the diversity of human societies, of cultures, their similarities, differences, and maybe uh, if we're very ambitious, how to explain those similarities and differences. And that leads you into, you already won the Pulitzer, and you do, especially a couple of books are kind of in the same time frame, which we're looking at the papacy and World War II and, and around that time frame. What kind of drew you to that particular time frame? And then how did that lead you to write The Pope at War? Well, it was, a, I guess, a bit of a circuitous route. So uh, as we were discussing, I'm, I got a PhD in social anthropology. I was always interested in history. Uh, but my interest in anthropology, the primary focus was uh, politics and religion. So I did my dissertation, um, my PhD dissertation, spending a year in a working class uh, neighborhood of Bologna, Italy, which at that time, now we're quite a few years ago, early 70s, uh, the capital of, of Italian communism. So I was curious about how the Communist Party and the Catholic Church competed for the loyalty of people in this area, which was heavily communist area. Being interested in history, I also would spend some time while I was you know, working in the churches there uh, on this project. I discovered their archives, and they had, at the time, annual censuses that the parish priest did of the parishioners in a census that went back hundreds of years. And so I began to spend some of my free time in the basement of the parish house and the church studying these, reading these, and this led to uh, some of my earlier works, which are more really hit what we call historical demography, looking at uh, how fam family life changed over the course of the 19th century as, as this area urbanized. It was a, a peasant uh, agricultural area before. So I was kind of balancing these both historical interests, but also church and politics. So if you're interested in church and politics and interested, or religion and politics, and you're interested in Italy, you're interested in the Vatican, there's <laughs> no getting around it. Uh, but I also had another interest early on, which was trying to write for a broader audience, not just fellow academics. And so I came across a story back in the mid-1990s, I guess, so quite a long time ago, which attracted my attention. It was a historical story. It's in Bologna in Italy, where I had done this other kind of work. Uh, it was from the mid-19th century when Bologna was still part of the Papal States, and it involved the decision of the local inquisitor, because what people find surprising, there was still an inquisition. This is 1858 in Bologna. Uh, the inquisitor heard that a, a small child, a six-year-old child in a local Jewish family had been secretly baptized by a uh, illiterate uh, teenage Christian servant girl. And according to the church policy at the time, uh, that child is now considered Catholic and could not be raised by Jews. So uh, the inquisitor sent the police, the papal police, to um, to seize the child and take the child away. So um, this struck me as, a, and it turned out to become a big international scandal. 
And in fact, I would argue played a role in the unification of Italy and the end of the papal states. So I decided at that point I was going to try my hand at writing for a broad audience based on original archival work, uh, saying things that would interest uh, other uh, fellow historians and scholars, but really attract a much broader audience to what I took to be a fascinating but underwritten about field, namely 19th and 20th century Italian history. And so that book, uh, which I mentioned earlier, that ended up being a, a finalist for the National Book Award, is called The Kidnapping of Garda Mortara. And so since then, I've been going back and forth really between the 19th and 20th century, looking at uh, the Catholic Church, the Vatican, and the uh, Italian politics, the Italian state. But then in 2006, they opened the archives of the Vatican for the papacy of Pius XI, and he was the pope in, in the 20s and 30s. So it's a dramatic time in Italy. In fact, he came to the papacy the same year Mussolini came to head the government in 1922. And so I became interested in the that relationship, uh, which turned out to be, I think, a fascinating one because uh, the Pope realized that uh, Mussolini didn't have a religious bone in his body, but uh, Mussolini realized he needed the support of the church if he was going to come to power and, and uh, solidify power. So they basically made a deal. And this deal, among other things, led to the Lateran Accords in 1929, which is what established Vatican City as a sovereign entity and ended the separation of church and state in, in Italy. So once I had written that book, uh, the Pope of Mussolini, uh, since the book ends really with the end of the that papacy, which was, uh, he died in February 39, just before the war is about to begin. It was kind of natural to do a sort of follow-up book. The other thing is that World War II and the action and inaction of the Pope during World War II, Pius XII, has uh, generated a huge controversy among historians and, and also among the general public uh, for many decades now. Um, I kind of made a bet, really, with uh, Francis became Pope, that he would see to the pressure that had been going on for decades to open those archives for World War II. So I began, after I finished the other book, uh, to work in the archives that were open, the Italian, the government, the fascist archives were open, the, the French, the German, the British, the American archives. They all, all these countries had envoys in the Vatican who were reporting practically every day during World War II about their conversations with the Pope, with the people around the Pope. And so when they finally did, uh, Francis announced the opening of the archive, which opened in March uh, 2020, so two and a half years ago. Uh, that was the last piece of the puzzle for me. I already had tens of thousands of documents digitized from these other archives, and uh, I needed to be able to uh, see what was in the Vatican archives as well. We need to back up just a little bit and just say it. You were one of the first into the secret Vatican archives. Is it anything like Indiana Jones? I'm picturing you walking past like the bodies of popes and you got to go into some catacombs and there are just these scrolls with all sorts of weird stuff on there. It's probably just an old building though, isn't it? Well, in fact, it's funny because the image I think most people have, the, at least in the U.S., seems to be Dan Brown did a book called Angels and Demons, where maybe the most dramatic scene takes place in the Vatican secret archives. Uh, but in fact, I don't know if he was ever there, but if he was, it's not reflected in his book because <laughs> they're nothing like that. So they are in the bowels of the Vatican. should say there are a number of different archives in the Vatican, but th that the main one, uh, they're the largest one. It was until about three years ago, and for centuries called the Vatican Secret Archive. But actually, the current Pope, Francis, renamed it. Apparently, he thought the Secret Archive didn't have a good ring to it. A little nefarious, yeah. Yes, and so he renamed it the Vatican Apostolic Archive, Apostolic first to Papal. So if you go there, you um, go in a side entrance of Vatican City, uh, the Santana Gate, 
you uh, walk through to an internal courtyard, and that courtyard has adjacent to one another, actually, the uh, Biblioteca Apostolica, which is the Vatican Library, and the Vatican, what had been the Vatican Secret Archive, now the Vatican Apostolic Archive, totally different administrations. Uh, the one thing they share is a bar, <laughs> or what the Italians call a bar, basically a cafe, which is kind of in between, the, in between them, so you can meet each other there. They, it has a beautiful reading room. They limit the number of people there, I think now to something like 60 people at a time. There's not any kind of central catalog. So they have what they call uh, finding aids, so that each different uh, group of documents would have a different index. It's called an index. It can take different forms. Uh, let's say the, um, uh, the papal nuncio, or it's basically papal ambassador to Italy, would have a uh, for let's say certain years would have its own uh, finding aid or, and so there'd be hundreds of different finding aids uh, and then uh, they're various limits so they're, they're different rooms they've got you know beautiful historic tall ceilings but you don't have access to the actual archives so everything has to be requested it's not that you can go roam around the stacks uh, of which there you know, must be a huge number so you are limited and you're limited to how much you material you can ask for each day, which can be frustrating too. And do you have to get on a list to even get to that point? Because I mean, you know, especially the Pope at War, you're writing history, and especially around this time, not everything the Catholic Church did comes off well. You know, I didn't know if there's any kind of political pressures about who's allowed to come in and ask for stuff, or if it's like, oh, this guy's blacklisted, we're not letting him in. Well, for the most part, I think they're pretty good about that. You need, they don't let journalists in, for example. You need to be a scholar. I think a dissertation student could come in. So there is a process for applying. Now you have to make a reservation. It's sometimes, particularly lately, there are limited spots. So that can be a problem. There are different archives for my book. I used, uh, among other archives, three of the Vatican. The, this is the archive we're talking about, uh, the Vatican Apostolic Archive, but also the archive of the Secretary of State of the Vatican. And the archive of what used to be called the Inquisition, now called the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And each one has a separate administration. They're lodged in different buildings, uh, different hours, different restrictions on having material copied. One, one commonality they have is you cannot bring in your own camera or uh, iPhone <laughs> and take pictures the way you could in state archives. Uh, you've got to... Um, well, in the case Inquisition Archive, basically these days you can't get copies at all. But the other archives, well, the main archive... You have to fill out a form. It can take um, some weeks or in some cases months to get the material. And they charge a large amount of money for them. So in fact, most users, if they don't have research budgets, are there with their personal computers, you know, typing away, transcribing documents, which can be pretty inefficient. I mean, it's almost as if the Catholic Church really has this whole documentation thing down. They, they've had 2,000 years to figure it out, but they do love their paperwork, it seems. Well, they love their history. And, you know, if you're in the archive, you'll find uh, there are many, for example, priests there doing the history of their national church. Let's say a Polish priest who's working on the history of the Polish church or a Brazilian priest working on the Brazilian church. So although we may think uh, sometimes of these somewhat more sexy topics, it's you know, all kinds of research going on there. And a lot of it is, you might say, internal research. There's a lot of interest within the church itself in, it, in its history. Is it hard writing about religion? Uh, growing up, I was told, you know, you don't talk about money, religion, or politics, right? So it's one of the big three. I is it harder for you to write? Because uh, as I mentioned, not everything is flattering here, right? So you know there's going to be pushback, and especially when you're talking about 
something big and institutional like the Catholic Church. There are people, especially nowadays, who freak out about religion. Do you think about that at all when you're writing? Or it's like, here is the history. This is what I'm providing. If you don't like it, these are the facts. Well, one thing I think is important is that I think history of religion, religious institutions shouldn't be left to historians of religion or historians of the church. Now, I think that, you know, the various aspects of your question, I mean, one that comes to mind is at you know, one point, my uh, one of the publicists at Random House was saying, let's describe this as the definitive book on Pius XII. And I said, well, first of all, as a scholar, I would never call a book of history definitive because <laughs> there's always something new that's going to come up. Uh, secondly, even if I were to call it definitive in what it was dealing with, which is this political situation, the Pope and the war, there are a lot of aspects of the papacy that I don't deal with. I mean, there are all sorts of theological elements that I'm no expert in and don't you know, pretend to deal with. Uh, yet, from if you're a church historian, these can be very important. But it is true that as scholars, you know, we're used to differences of opinion, but not used to, at least I'm not used to denunciations, <laughs> the way that you can get if you do work of the sort that I've been doing now for quite a few years. You know, to be announced, even I remember by a, uh, in one case, by a, a Notre Dame professor for abusing the archives. I mean, it's kind of a bizarre concept. And when this recent book, The Pope at, at War, came out in Italy, it came out a couple of weeks earlier, the Italian edition than the American edition, so the end of May. The Vatican Daily newspaper, L'Osservatoire Romano, devoted an entire page to denouncing the book. And two days later, the daily newspaper of the uh, Catholic Church hierarchy in Italy called L'Avenire basically cribbed from that review, devoted another full page, this time by a reviewer clearly hadn't even read the book, to denouncing me and the book. So, um, yeah, you have to be ready, <laughs> I guess, have to have a... Th it helps to have a thick skin, particularly in this case, because Pius XII, the subject of my book, is a big hero to the right wing of the Catholic Church, who are trying to see him made a saint. Why is he a hero? Because he's the last pope before the Second Vatican Council, which, from the point of view of many in the right wing of the church, is where the church went wrong, and uh, with John the Twenty-Third and so on. So, in fact, if you go on Twitter almost any day, you can find many tweets proclaiming Pius XII the last legitimate pope and saying Francis isn't really a pope. So, uh, you know, clearly these are kinds of um, the book like mine provokes kind of anger that you wouldn't normally see in your typical academic book. Which is very funny to me because you, I am Catholic, right? I went into this book and I'm like, all right, buckle up. I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to have to skip mass this week. I don't think I'm going to feel great about myself and my choice in religion. But in my opinion, this is not a hit job. Uh, the analogy I would use is it felt like when you take a test and you're like, oh, man, I totally failed that test and you get it back and you got a C, like you didn't do a great job, but you didn't do nearly as badly as you did. Because in, you know, I sent this to you ahead of time. I just my reading of this book is what you say is Pius was not evil or sociopathic or didn't care. He just he was in over his head, especially politically. He felt like he could pull strings and make people dance and he couldn't. Everybody else he was dealing with is just one step ahead of him. That's kind of how I summed it up. Would you agree or did I miss it? No, I think you're right. And I you know, hope readers, I think many readers do appreciate this. Some who I think don't even bother reading the book and denounce it, you know, totally mischaracterize it, as you say, as some kind of hit job. I mean, my, first of all, that would be bad history. 
Um, you know, say here are the good guys, there are the bad guys. History is more complicated than that, and society is more complicated than that. Uh, and Pius XII, you know, fell uh, faced you know great tests and great challenges and great difficulties uh, for anybody. And uh, you know, Mussolini and Hitler knew how to intimidate him, and you know that was his weakness. Um, so they knew how to manipulate him, basically how to get a bomb, basically by his silence, uh, part through intimidation. So what I try to do in the book is uh, understand, for one thing, that there are different periods, too. I mean, the early years of the war, uh, the Pope had good reason to believe that Hitler was going to win the war, given how you know, quickly he marched first through Poland and the following spring through um, Belgium, Netherlands and France, uh, and then North Africa and so on, and the Balkans. Uh, there was good reason to believe Hitler was going to win the war. And so for the Pope, this feeling he's got to protect the church. And so you know, this partly uh, motivates him. The other thing that motivates him is I mean, who was doing the war, who in the Holocaust, who was massacring the Jews. They were, you know, they were Christians. There were people who thought they were Christians. They didn't think they were pagans. Uh, of course, not just Catholics, Protestants as well. And so the Pope was afraid if he denounced uh, the Nazis that was being supported by the Germans, both Protestants and Catholics, uh, he could cause a split in the church in Germany. And you know, in the Vatican, there's still the recollection of the of Martin Luther in the 16th century split in the church. So you know, what I tried to do in the book is explain different phases of the war, what was going on in the Pope's mind, what the, his advisors were telling him, and therefore uh, why he made those decisions he did. And I read the denunciations, actually. I did find them, and I read them, because I wanted to really, you know, dig in and kind of say, because especially reading your book, you go point to point. Like there, there isn't anything where you editorialize or anything like that. It's like this is what happened. This is what he did. This is everything that happened factually. And it was very funny. The denunciation seemed very flimsy to me because they basically focused on. But he didn't talk about this meeting where Pius was a little bit stronger in his wording. It's like, listen. However, history is history. But at the end of the day. He knew the Holocaust was happening, and politically and all those things, he was too much of a coward to take it head on, which I think is fair to say, at least in my words anyway. Yes, well, you know, the probably the most dramatic illustration was October 16th, 1943. The Germans, the previous month, had occupied Rome. Hitler sends the SS, 350 SS, to Rome to round up all the Jews of Rome and send them to their death. They round up you know, 1,260 uh, Jews that go door to door, place them in a holding area, actually a military college, just outside Vatican City. I mean, literally a stone's throw from Vatican City. And the Pope is under great pressure to denounce this. And of course, he's very unhappy, but um, he decides he's not going to say anything. And uh, two days later, the Jews, after they checked to see who was baptized, so that, because the Germans didn't want to offend the Pope, uh, which is something we could talk about why that was, and uh, so released the Jews who had been baptized and even Jews who had been married to Christians, uh, about 250 of them. And so although 1,260 about were rounded up, just over 1,000 were then put on the train two days later in Rome uh, that went directly to Auschwitz, where the day they arrived, most of them were sent directly to the gas chamber. And you touched on a point that it, it comes up multiple times, and I, I still don't understand it. Pius was really focused on when he came to protecting people. If you were just Jewish, 
that's somebody else's problem, basically. But if you were mar- if you were Jewish and married to a Christian, we're going to do what we can. If you used to be Jewish, but now you're a Christian, he was seemingly obsessed with that differentiation between people, which as a spiritual guide is just a total failure. But even from an administrative perspective, it, it seemed like a strange line to draw in the sand of, you you could take these people, but these people, this is a gray area. You need to leave him. Is that something, is that built from anything, or was that just his weird way of looking at it? Well, no, it is built on something. I think yeah, what we can look at in particular are the so-called race laws, the racial laws in Italy, uh, which were put into effect beginning in 1938. So now we're talking about before the war begins. Uh, Mussolini announces these anti-Semitic laws that will throw all Jewish children out of the schools, fire all Jewish teachers, professors, not allow Jewish professionals to have non-Jewish clients, throws out of work all uh, Jews who work for the civil service, the military, banks, insurance industry, and so on. So they're really draconian and are uh, disastrous for the Jews of Italy. And, and basically what it's doing is bringing back the laws that were in effect uh, in the papal states when they had ghettoized the Jews until, in the case of Rome, only 1870. It wasn't all that you know far in the past. The fascist regime in Italy justified their anti-Jewish campaign by referring to what the Pope said. They were just doing what the Popes had insisted uh, all good Christians needed to do to protect themselves from a Jewish threat. So at that time, the one thing that the uh, Popes, first Pius XI, then Pius XII, when he becomes Pope in early 1939, one thing they protest, albeit not publicly, only privately, is the inclusion of people they regard as Christian as subject to the racial laws. Because from their point of view, a Jew who had been baptized should be regarded not as a Jew, but as a Catholic, and therefore should not be subject to these kinds of discrimination. But this kind of discrimination uh, against the Jews, they had no trouble with. So you know, what happens in during the war is the Secretary of State office uh, basically becomes very busy trying to demonstrate the baptismal credentials of Jews who had been baptized to get them initially uh, out of the uh, discrimination of the racial laws, and then eventually um, out of the attempts to have them deported to their death at uh, Nazi concentration camps. And you can't even defend Pius by saying, oh, he just thought Hitler was better than that, because you also point out Pius basically kind of had a, we'll call it a bromance with Mussolini. They they really kind of liked each other and tried to play off each other, whereas Pius never really liked Hitler. It wasn't a matter of him being snowed over. He didn't realize who this guy was. Pius was never really comfortable with Hitler and the Nazi state, right? That's true. So there's a very, people often, I think, mistakenly tend to think of, well, the Vatican's relationship to the the Axis powers and the fascists and the, the Nazis, but there were two very different things. Uh, the Vatican had basically made a kind of alliance, you could say, for uh, historians sometimes refer to a clerico-fascist state uh, where Mussolini was willing to give all sorts of privileges to the church in support in um, exchange for its support. In the last years of Pius XI's life, particularly the last months, he becomes increasingly upset, in fact, about Mussolini's embrace of Hitler and is quite critical of it. So, for example, the pages of the Vatican Daily newspaper in the last months of Pius XI's life, so now we're talking about late 38, early 39, are regularly denouncing what they take to be the persecution of the Catholic Church in Germany and Austria. And so when Pius XII becomes Pope in, in March of 39, Hitler sees an opportunity. And this is one, one thing I discovered, a kind of amazing discovery in these newly opened archives. 
In fact, when I discovered it, I was uh, sure that someone else was going to find this and publish it before my book came out. But fortunately, they didn't uh, from this point of view, kind of selfish point of view. Uh, but uh, essentially a month after the Pope becomes Pope, Pius XII, Hitler decides, sees an opportunity to stop the criticism uh, of the Nazi regime that his predecessor had been um, expressing. And so sends a secret emissary to begin negotiations with the Pope. And this is what's now come to light in my book. Uh, and through these newly open archives, the amazing thing there is that it also turns out that the Pope kept a German prelate hidden in an adjacent room to write down basically transcripts of his conversations, which were held in German, by the way. The Pope had spent 12 years in Germany uh, and was fluent in German. So his, and the Nazi emissary is a very colorful character himself. Anyway, we now uh, found find in these newly open archives actual central transcripts of the conversations, the negotiations that were taking place between Hitler's emissary and the Pope. And uh, something else a lot of people will say, oh, what could the church do? It, it didn't have, you know, power to stop any of this stuff. You dispel that too, and I think it's best illustrated in that one of the things that the Allies and Axis 100% agreed on was make sure not to drop any bombs on the Vatican. Both of them made sure don't get anywhere close to it, leave it alone. In fact, if somebody else drops a bomb, that's a huge coup for us because then we can kind of manipulate this power. So it wasn't even, you know, that the Vatican was hostage to Mussolini and everything like that. They still had a good amount of power. And to a certain point, Mussolini and Hitler both still recognized that and respected it. Well, they were both trying to portray themselves as defenders of Christian Europe against the Jews and against the communists, the two big enemies. You know, for example, uh, one hears that the Pope was afraid that he'd be kidnapped by the, uh, he's not assassinated by the Germans. And the fact that uh, Hitler knew how to keep those threats, not of assassination, but of being kidnapped uh, there because he knew how to intimidate the Pope. But it would have come at a huge cost to Hitler uh, or Mussolini, for that matter, to do anything against the Pope because they were proclaiming themselves as, as champions of, of Christian Europe. And uh, that would be kind of hard to do if you would take an action against the Pope or occupied Vatican City and, and so on. So, yeah, this this was the uh, the situation. Now, I think when you talk about, you know, what impact they could have, it's very different, the Italian case and the German case. Germany, first of all, you know, there are more Protestants than Catholics. So, um, you know, there's that. But Italy, not only, of course, is Italy overwhelmingly Roman Catholic, but the Pope was not only Italian, but Roman <laughs> Uh, the cardinals of the Curia, the central um, administration of the church, were there were roughly two dozen of them, and all but one were Italian, one was French. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church had an incredible capillary network throughout the country of parishes, uh, uh, you know, thousands of parish priests and so on. And the, the, uh, the other thing I, that I think we should keep in mind is that the war was not initially was not going to be popular with the Italians. I mean, they just fought a war against Germany. World War I wasn't that much in the past where half a million Italians had died. Secondly, the uh, main Nazi ideology of the supremacy of the Aryan race was not going to appeal to Italians. So asking the Italy and Italians to go to war at the side of Nazi Germany was going to be a stretch for Mussolini. The last thing he needed was for the Pope to mobilize the church network in opposition. So in Italy, the Pope had huge power, huge influence in a way that much less so in Germany. 
another it gets to what you were just mentioning i don't think a lot of people realize this but if you read world war ii history you have the idea mussolini was hitler's hero for a good long time i think when we look back at world war ii you see italy being out of the war first very quickly but a lot of people don't realize when when Hitler was coming to power, Mussolini was one of his prime examples of how he thought he should do what he was doing, right? Well, yes. In fact, in the 19th, so Hitler uh, only comes to power more or less 11 years after Mussolini or a little over 10 years later. So um, Mussolini becomes head of the government in 1922, and Hitler only comes to power in January of 1933. In those years, in the intervening years, Hitler had his uh, headquarters in Munich. He kept a bust of Mussolini, you know, on his desk. And his beer hall putsch in uh, 1925 came only less than three years after the March on Rome, which to some extent was his model uh, for trying to come to power unsuccessfully, obviously, in, in the beer hall uh, putsch in 1925. So, uh, you know, this relationship uh, would remain in some ways close, but they would begin to change valence, you might say, because increasingly after Hitler comes to power, uh, there's going to be a change such that by the late 30s, Hitler is clearly the, in the dominant position in the relationship. I hate to do what if scenarios, but you're a scholar, so you're going to know best about this. And I think you you sort of hint to it when talking about Pius XII's predecessor, Pius XI, that he dealt with this differently. Is there a situation, do you think, if Pius XI held on longer, that this would have been dramatically different? Just wondering, because I'm kind of asking, when you read about Pius XII, is this how any pope would have went, that this is probably, I still call it cowardly, but maybe the political savvy way was to try and play it in the background? Or does somebody like Pius XI, who sounded more like of a bull in a china shop, he wasn't going to be bossed around, do, do you think it's different? Well, there were very different personalities. For one thing, uh, Pius XI would, if he was angry, would literally pound his fist on his table and, and shout at, uh, let's say, an ambassador to the Holy See from some country that was doing something he was unhappy about. Pius XII, his successor, who, by the way, was his number two as Secretary of State throughout the 1930s, uh, was the kind of consummate diplomat, uh, was reserved type, uh, was very cautious with what he said. Uh, would not be caught shouting at anybody. I think if, as you say, it's hard to you know, do this kind of conjectural history, but certainly, well, one thing we know is that Mussolini was being told by his ambassador to the Vatican, as well as by his spies in the Vatican, that Pius XI was about to denounce his alliance with Hitler. And in fact, there's this kind of dramatic scene, uh, which fairly early in my book, where um, Mussolini learns this, that uh, on the 10th anniversary of those Lateran Accords that established Vatican City, so uh, on February 11th of 1939, there's to be a huge gathering at St. Peter's Basilica of the 350 or so bishops of Italy, together with the World Press Corps and uh, foreign diplomats, at which the Pope was going to speak. And uh, Mussolini's ambassador to the Holy See was reporting uh, that it said that the Pope was going to denounce his alliance with Hitler at that speech. Uh, so that was supposed to be February 11th. The Pope dies on February 10th, <laughs> 1939, which of course leads to various conspiracy theories. But when Hitler, when Mussolini rather hears of the death of Pius XI, uh, having heard these rumors, he immediately sends his ambassador to the Vatican to meet with the man now in charge in the interregnum, which is uh, Eugenio Pacelli, the man who will succeed him as Pius XII, and basically suggests that 
uh, this speech you'd be preparing uh, not come to light because, uh, in fact, the Pope had made had ordered the Vatican Printing Office to make copies, 350 or so copies for all the bishops so that they'd be able to read it while he was uh, giving the speech. And so uh, Pacelli, Cardinal Pacelli at the time, before becoming Pope, calls up the papal, the Vatican Printing Office and orders the all the 350 copies destroyed of the speech, making Mussolini, of course, very happy. Later, we, we find out the speech wasn't quite the ringing denunciation we might have hoped it was, but it certainly was not one that uh, Mussolini or Hitler, for that matter, would have been happy about. So I don't know that um, because Pius XI too could sometimes blow hot and cold, Cardinal Pacelli, uh, before he became Pope as Secretary of State, along with others around the Pope, kept trying to cool his ardor and uh, tell them, look, uh, we don't want to risk uh, getting Mussolini angry at the church. Uh, too much good has uh, come to the church through having amicable relations and so on. So it's not entirely clear that Pius XI would have, in the end, been this kind of bold voice for uh, morality and so on uh, at the expense of uh, short-term threats to the institutional welfare of the church, but maybe. Well, I mean, if we're going to hand out sainthoods, right, I'd rather go with the guy who almost maybe told Mussolini and Hitler to shove it. So that that's just my vote. I don't think anyone at the College Cardinal is going to listen to that, but I just want to put this on this podcast so it's out there. Well, there is, you know, a, a big effort to make Pius XII a, a saint, but yes, I think you're right. They probably are not going to be influenced by, by your vote. Which is sad. I've, I've read a lot of books. Well, I want to ask um, one more question. We founded History Nerd United because there are a lot of people who say history is boring, right? It's just, it's just boring history. That's what it was like growing up. You know, you've read about the American Revolution 20,000 times. For the Pope at War, if you had one of those people in front of you and said, I don't read history, history is boring, why would you say they should still give the Pope at War a chance? Well, that's why I started trying to write these books the way that I've been writing them. Uh, I had written a number of books uh, for university presses, which you know, hopefully I think were reasonably well written, but they were read and really aimed for other uh, scholars and university students and so on, because I find this history so fascinating as well as so important. Uh, I've made this real effort to bring history to life. And these are real people. They're facing real dr drama. So it's trying to really have the reader in the position of the fly in the wall when these, you know, really dramatic events are taking place and understanding, you know, how these conversations, getting to know these personalities. And that's what I try to do in the book. So the book is, uh, takes the reader through this huge drama that is the gathering clouds of World War II, the breaking, breakout of World War II, the fears of Nazi hegemony of Europe, rule of Europe, uh, and then the disaster that's the, the Holocaust. Uh, as well as the more general disaster of World War II, but to see it through the eyes of people who are actually uh, living in it, including some of the major players in terms of the major players of the Vatican, of course, but also in the Italian and, and German governments. Well, David, this was fantastic. Truly honored to get to talk to you. It's a fantastic book. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. And that is it for this episode. Thank you, David, so much for coming on here. The Pope at War, great book, everybody. Go out and read it. In the meantime, hit us up, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Follow the podcast. Leave us five-star reviews, please. Send us anything you want. Let us know what you want us to do more of. We'll think about it, at least. Definitely. In the meantime, take it easy, nerds. Take it easy, nerds.